0: Hey everybody, welcome to the 72nd episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other news episodes, are part of Atlas News. Check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the Journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds dot journal to see more also please consider supporting us on patreon ko-fi or substack you could find all those links in the show notes below so today is december 30th it is just before five o'clock here on the west coast in northern california so obviously this is our last episode for the year as new year's eve is tomorrow and we'll see you guys next week with uh, probably another history episode myself and john already have that recorded so i just need to get it edited and put out that'll be our first episode for the new year so hope everybody has a good holiday um and enjoys their time with their friends and loved ones and such with that being said we'll head into it okay getting started off here with europe in eurasia this is a name that is probably familiar to a lot of you guys On the 27th, Austrian engineer Gaston Glock, who's known for the Glock pistol, passed away at 94. Obviously uh, a huge icon in the firearms world. Moving on to Turkey, on the 28th, Turkey's Anka-3 unmanned combat aerial vehicle, or just a drone, completed its maiden flight. The drone was developed to conduct suppression of enemy air defense, uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, electronic warfare, and deep strike operations. It is supposed to operate as a stealth drone, which would be a first for Turkey. During the test flight, the drone reached 8,000 feet and 150 knots, about 172 miles per hour, and lasted 10 minutes. Turkey is also developing other aircraft at the moment. Uh, Bakar, which is known for the TB2 drone, among others, is conducting taxi tests on the Baratar, uh, Kiz Kizilima unmanned fighter. Turkey's first homegrown stealth fighters also being developed. That's the TF Khan. That fighter is expected to conduct its maiden flight very soon and has a planned introduction of 2028. Moving on to Russia, after a 17-day disappearance, Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny has been located at a penal colony north of the Arctic Circle. Navalny was hidden from his lawyers during this time period. They were denied access to the penal colony in Maricopa in Vladimir Oblast where he was originally sentenced on December 7th. On the 10th they learned that Navalny was no longer registered at that penal colony and his whereabouts were at that point unknown. (laughs) A court in the Oblast told his lawyers that a scheduled appeal could not be held as Navalny was not present but they could not comment on his location even though they knew where he was. He was finally located and visited by his lawyers on the 25th at the IK3 Super Maximum Penal Colony otherwise known as Polar Wolf on the bank of the Sob River in Siberia. The prison is one of 7 supermax prisons operated by the Federal Penitentiary Service for convicts serving life sentences which Navalny right now is not in a statement through his lawyers Navalny said that he is in good spirits. Looking at the Russo-Ukrainian war in the middle of the month Russian forces claim the capture the full capture of Marinka in Donetsk Oblast Ukraine contested that claim, but we now know that the city has been fully captured with geolocations showing Russian flags on the western edge of Marinka, and also the Ukrainian military has since confirmed that capture. The battle for the city lasted almost 10 years, dating back to the early days of the war in Donbass. After 2015, much of the fighting was done in the form of shelling between the two sides. Heavy combat picked back up on February 17th, 2022 just a week before the full invasion of Ukraine in May 2022 just a few people in the city remained which had an estimated population of about 5000 in 2016 and 9000 before the fighting began in 2014 the city has been completely flattened just a handful of buildings remain somewhat standing and no civilians remain also the government the Ukrainian government has submitted a draft to parliament the for Governor rada regarding military recruitment the draft was first reported to local media by member of parliament taras malnitrok and was found on the parliament's website but it has since been removed if approved this bill would lower the conscription age from 27 to 25 it would also mandate military training at age 18 for a period of 3 months and give the government more resources to crack down on those who have avoided conscription so far Additionally, the bill would see the end of fixed-term military service, meaning that once a serviceman completes their active duty time, they would automatically be put into the reserves. Conscripts who prefer, conscripts who performed and were released from their service during a time of martial law, which Ukraine is currently in, are not subject to mobilization within two years of them leaving the service. Among other things, the bill would also provide former POWs with leave and monetary assistance for 90 calendar days after their date of release. Again, this has not been approved. It's not been voted on. It's just a draft so far. On the 25th, Ukraine destroyed Rapucha class landing ship Novocherkassk, in the port of Fedusia, Crimea, with cruise missiles. The ship was mostly submerged due in part to the attack setting off munitions stored on the ship, Grad-M rockets specifically, which the ship is armed with. Novotrkosk was damaged during the Ukrainian missile attack on the port of Berdyansk in May of last year, and as of August of last year, the ship was out of action due to the damage sustained in that March attack and a lack of parts to repair it caused by sanctions against Russia. Not much is known about the ship since then until this attack. Russia claims that it shot down two Ukrainian Su-24 bombers during the attack, which is unlikely as no proof has been shown. There is conflicting reports as to how many casualties were caused. Russia officially only claims that one person died due to a fire that was caused by the attack. However, multiple sources have claimed that over 70 Russian sailors actually died on board that ship on the 28th and 29th ukraine was under heavy bombardment shahid-136 drones began hitting kharkiv sumi and lviv around 2100 local time nine o'clock pm on the 28th those were followed up by air to ground munitions launched from eight tu-95 ms bombers additionally kharkiv was also targeted with s-300 missiles in ground attack mode in total this was one of if not the largest russian strike on ukraine in the war 36 Shahid drones and 122 missiles of various types were launched in total. Ukraine claims that it downed 27 drones and 87 missiles. Most or all of the targets hit were civilian in nature. Shopping centers, high-rises, a subway station, and other types of infrastructure in Kiev, Odessa, Kharkiv, Dnipro, and other cities. And additionally, some uh, debris from munitions that were shot down also hit civilian targets, such as apartment buildings. Preliminary claims from the government say that about 38 people were killed and over 160 others were injured across the country as far as i'm aware that death toll is still rising so we will keep you guys up to date if that does update again looking at central asia in the middle east looking at qatar the country has reduced the death sentence for eight former indian sailors who were convicted of spying for israel those sailors are captain naftesh singh gil captain Barendra Kumar Verma, Captain Suraba Vishasht, Commander Amit Nakpal, Commander Prundu Tiwari, Commander Sunkara Palaka, Commander Sanjeev Gupta, and Sailor Ragesh. I didn't get his first name. They were arrested last August by Qatar's intelligence service while working for Dara Global Technologies and Consultancy Services. The, the Qatari government contracted that company out to build several naval vessels. The charges against the men were never publicly released, but they were accused of supplying information to Israel regarding Qatar's naval buildup and its U-212 submarine program. The men were convicted and sentenced to death in October of this year. Last week's victory in the Court of Appeal got their sentences reduced to jail time, however, although the exact amount of time they will serve in jail has not been publicly stated. Looking at Syria on December 25th, an Israeli airstrike killed IRGC Quds Force Lieutenant General Razi al-Mushabi in Damascus. Mushabi was previously sanctioned by the U.S. government for providing support to Hezbollah and other Iranian-backed terror forces. Musavi was close to Lieutenant General Qasim Suleimani, who you may know, before he was killed by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad in 2020. After his death, Iranian member of parliament, Moshtaba Tabangar, directly claimed on Twitter that Mushabi was a key planner of the October 7th attack against Israel, otherwise known as the Al Aqsa storm. And I don't believe that has been contested. I'll keep you guys up to date if anything comes of that, though. Looking at the Israel Hamas war, looking at reported casualties for Gaza, we have 21,672 killed, 56,165 injured. For Israel, we have 1,376 killed, 8,788 injured. In the Gaza operation specifically, you have 170 killed in action, 874 wounded. In the West Bank, you have 326 killed, 3,456 injured. The vast majority of those are Palestinians. Looking at Lebanon, you have 150 killed. Syria, you have 76 killed. Egypt, you have nine injured. That gives us a grand total of 23,597 killed and 68,417 injured since October 7th. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, the number of journalists and media workers that have been killed in this war is 68. The vast majority of those were Palestinians that have been killed in Gaza. That number is 61. Additionally, you have four Israelis and three Lebanese journalists that have been killed as well. Heavy fighting and clearance operations are still ongoing in the north, with the IDF opening up two more axes from the border and making major progress in the north over the week. In the south, heavy fighting is still ongoing in Kan Yunis, the second largest city in the Gaza Strip, with progress being made there as well. And in central Gaza, the IDF has begun pushing into the Baraj refugee camp, I think I said that right, in operation that they believe will take two to three weeks. We'll see about that. Border clashes between Israel and Lebanese Hezbollah have continued. Of course, they have been going on this whole time, and they really haven't stopped Uh, except for that period of ceasefire with Hamas, and then they resumed right after, and it's been a constant thing since then. So really, not a whole lot to say about that. Over 100 hostages are still being held in Gaza. Now, we are learning more about the recent incident in which three Israeli hostages were accidentally killed by Israeli troops in Gaza City. We reported on that last episode. A full investigation of the incident has been concluded. Those hostages are Yotam Haim, alone Chamiz and Samira Talaka. The three men had managed to escape Hamas custody before they were shot. They were exiting a building when a soldier reported them as suspicious. They were shirtless and one of them was carrying a white flag. That soldier reportedly thought it was an attempt by Hamas to lure his unit into a trap, so he opened fire, immediately killing Chamiz and Talaka. The commanding officer of the 17th battalion, uh the brigade ordered his soldiers to cease fire as haim fled back into the building haim shouted to the soldiers in hebrew and about 15 minutes after the initial shooting the commander shouted at him telling him to quote come my way two soldiers apparently did not hear the commander's order due to noise from a nearby tank and once haim exited the building they shot and killed him immediately The investigation found that the unit was not expecting to come across hostages in the area, even though Army intelligence suggested that there could be hostages there. The soldiers involved in the incident are not expected to be dismissed or face trial for the killings. Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Hersey Havali ordered all unit commanders to review the investigation and raise awareness for the possibility of coming across hostages during combat operations. Now we got a foreign affairs update. Falling out between Israel and Turkey continues on the 27th. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was no different than Adolf Hitler and compared the assault on Gaza to the treatment of Jews by Nazi Germany. Bibi responded by saying that Erdogan is, quote, carrying out a genocide of Kurds, end quote. This is in relation to Turkey's campaigns against both Kurdish armed groups and civilians in syria and northern iraq the turkish military and its islamist proxies in syria routinely carry out war crimes and other forms of violence to include sexual violence against kurdish populations in these areas and although Bibi saying this about erdogan is pretty rich he had Nothing to say about Azerbaijan, which is essentially an extension of Turkey, just ethnically cleansing 120,000 Armenians a couple months ago, in part with Israeli weapons, which they are still more than willing to supply to Azerbaijan's president, Ilham Aliyev. Erdogan has previously condemned Israel, calling it a terrorist state and saying that its leaders should be trialed in international court, so I do not expect things to get better between those two countries anytime soon certainly not while the war is ongoing since october 17th there have been at least 103 drone and rocket attacks on u.s troops in iraq and syria the attacks resumed soon after the expiration of the ceasefire between israel and hamas and have continued since then the pentagon has confirmed 69 casualties so far at least including 25 traumatic brain injuries and now one critical casualty the u.s military has launched seven response strikes that seventh response came on December 26th when U.S. airstrikes in Iraq targeted multiple facilities belonging to Kataib Hezbollah, a major Iranian-backed militia in the country. The headquarters of the group and other infrastructure was destroyed, and the U.S. believes that multiple militants were killed in these response strikes. The strikes were in response to an attack against U.S. forces the day prior, which wounded three American troops, including one that was critically wounded and had to be evacuated out of Iraq. Iraq's Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani condemned the U.S. for these strikes, calling them, quote, clear hostile acts. He claims that civilians were injured, while uh, Central Command says that this is not the case. The same statement, he claims that civilians were injured in the strikes, while U.S. Central Command says this was not the case. In the same statement, he also clarified that the attacks against coalition forces and diplomatic outposts are also hostile acts. And also, for the first time, the Islamic resistance of Iraq has claimed a drone attack against an Israeli settlement. That is Eliyad, an Israeli settlement in the occupied Golan Heights, internationally recognized as territory of Syria. No injuries were reported in that attack. Again, that is the first time that that group has claimed an attack against Israeli-held territory. Yemen-based Houthi rebels have continued their activity in the region. There have been at least 22 attacks against commercial shipping and allied naval assets in the area since October 19th. On December 23rd, the USS Laboon shot down four Houthi suicide drones after it was attacked in the Red Sea. There was no damage to the ship or any injuries to personnel. Later in the day, Laboon responded to distress calls from two separate ships, MV Blamanen, a Norwegian flagged and owned tanker, reported a near miss by a Houthi suicide drone. And then also the MV Saibaba, a Gabon-owned and Indian flag tanker, reported getting hit by a suicide drone that caused no injuries. On the 26th, the USS Laboon and F-18 Hornets launched from the USS Dwight D. Eisenhower aircraft carrier, intercepted 12 suicide drones, three anti-ship ballistic missiles, and two cruise missiles fired by the Houthis. CENTCOM did not confirm the intended targets of these munitions. On the 28th, the USS Mason engaged and destroyed a suicide drone and an anti-ship ballistic missile in the Red Sea that were fired by the Houthis. And according to Al-Mayadeen, Djibouti has refused to provide forces and ships to Operation Prosperity Guardian, which we reported on last episode. That is a new U.S.-led operation to counter Houthi actions in the region. Discussing the matter, Foreign Minister Mahmoud al youssef said that, quote, if Palestine does not find relief elsewhere, may God bless the relief provided by the Yemenis, referring to the Houthis. This statement is interesting considering that Djibouti houses a major U.S. Navy base, which is crucial to Prosperity Guardian and other American operations in the area. That statement does not seem to signal Djibouti's willingness to change that arrangement, though. Got a Naval Forces Posture update in the region. Thank you to Intel Schizo on Twitter for his infographics. The Israeli Navy has three Corvettes near the Sinai Peninsula. The Gerald R. Ford Carrier Strike Group has had their deployment extended. By Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin into the new year. The carrier strike group has been deployed for seven and a half months and has now been extended three times. The Ike carrier strike group is in the Gulf of Aden. The Bataan amphibious readiness group has left the region and it is regrouping with the USS Mesa Verde in the Mediterranean. There are 10 ships in the Gulf of Aden under the framework of the Combined Maritime Forces, which just typically means our allies in the region. China has three ships in the Gulf of Aden. Iran has two ships in the Red Sea and two in the Indian Ocean. India has two ships operating off of its coast, thanks to that attack last week by the Houthis. And the British Royal Navy has four ships near Bahrain. And the U.S. Navy has 12 ships in the Persian Gulf and in the Gulf of Oman. We will take a quick break and we'll be right back with Africa. Okay, we are back. Moving on to Africa, taking a look at Burundi. The government of Burundi said that an attack in the country's west on December 22nd was carried out by the Red Tabara Group, a rebel group based in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo that's been battling Burundi's government for quite some time. They attacked a military position in the town of Bugizo near the border with the DRC. The government says that civilians in the town were also targeted, and in total, one policeman and 19 civilians were killed. That includes 12 children, three women, and five men. Red Tabara claimed responsibility for the attack, but did deny killing civilians. Instead, they said that they killed nine soldiers and one policeman. The group was formed in 2011 in response to what they claim was the fraudulent 2010 elections. They've been actively fighting the government since 2015 after, bear with me, President Pierre Nkurunziza announced that he would run for a third term, despite the Constitution allowing only two terms. After a coup to oust Nkurunziza failed in 2015, Red Tabara gained new members who sought to overthrow the government and took up arms. Then, moving on to the Americas, Bulletin from the Borderlands released on the 15th. We covered a border dispute between Venezuela and Guyana and a former U.S. ambassador spying on behalf of Cuba for decades. And again, that release on the 15th, there will not be a release on January 1st, uh, New Year's Day. The next release will be on January 15th. Looking at Venezuela and Guyana, the UK announced that the HMS Trent, which is a batch two river class patrol vessel, will be deployed to Guyana in a show of support in the midst of the border dispute with Venezuela. Guyana is a former British colony, and the British play a historical role in the territorial dispute Trent has already deployed to the Caribbean earlier this month to take over for its sister ship, the Medway, while it undergoes maintenance in Gibraltar. Venezuela was not too happy about this happening. Looking at Haiti on Christmas Day, the U.S. Embassy in Port-au-Prince was ordered to shelter in place due to heavy gunfire in the area. The gunfire was not directed at the embassy, but the incident does highlight the situation in the capital city, which is not good, uh, needless to say. Looking at the U.S. got a presidential race update. These are averages from 538. Some of these have been updated since Christmas. Some have not. So Biden's approval is at 55%. His approval is at 39. Both of those remain the same from last episode. Trump's favorability is at 53. I'm sorry, his favorability is at 42. His unfavorability is at 53. Both of those remain the same. The Democratic primary, Biden, is at 68%. He is up two points. Marion Williamson is at 7%. She is down one. And Congressman Dean Phillips is at 4%. He is down one as well. Looking at the Republican primary, Trump is at 61%. He's down two points. Ron DeSantis is at 12 He is actually the same from last episode. And Nikki Haley is at 11 She is also remaining the same. And probably the big story of the week Last week, Shana Bellows, who is the Secretary of State for Maine, said that she would rule on challenges to Trump's eligibility after the Colorado court was concluded. By that, I mean the Colorado Supreme Court, in which they determined that Trump cannot be on the ballot and cannot have right votes counted for him. Now, we reported on that in the last episode. Well, Bellows did not wait for the Supreme Court to conclude the Colorado case, but she made her decision regardless. On December 28th, she decided that former President Donald Trump is ineligible to run for president next year and will be removed from Maine's ballot. She made this decision based on the 14th Amendment's clause regarding insurrection, which is the same clause used by the Colorado Supreme Court. The decision is suspended until the Supreme Court weighs in, that being the U.S. Supreme Court. This is the first time in U.S. history that a state-level Secretary of State has acted unilaterally to remove a former president from the ballot. Recently, Texas Governor Greg Abbott threatened to have President Joe Biden removed from the ballot if states continue to remove Trump from theirs. Well, Steve, he tries to follow through on that. And also, as we reported on in the last episode, there are efforts in other states to get Trump removed as well. Those efforts have already failed in Arizona, Florida, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Michigan. Over the week, the Michigan Supreme Court shot down the attempt, concluding that it did not have the constitutional authority to remove somebody from the ballot. But again, we are all kind of waiting on the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the issue and see what they say, and we'll know a lot more when that happens. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Of course, it means a lot to me. You can find this on your favorite apps. That include Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. We are also on Telegram, same name. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, Substack, or Ko-Fi. You can find all those links in the show notes below. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app. You to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. You can expect a new episode probably midweek next week. And Again, that's probably going to be a history episode with myself and John looking at Great Britain prior to World War One. But right now, that's all I have for you guys. I'll see you soon. Have a good New Year's.